Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. And hello, everybody. Okay. I was going to say, is that all you're going to do? I was speaking bird. <sighs> the views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. <laughs> Before we get started, we wanted to remind you of our upcoming live show at the Rio Theatre during the Vancouver Podcast Festival. And that's at 10 p.m. on November 9th, 2019. That's the Rio Theatre in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. You can get your tickets by going to the website for the Vancouver Podcast Festival. Just Google that. And do it and get them. My hands are currently clasped. Clasped. Below my chin. He's praying. I'm praying. And Scott does not pray easily. Nope. I'm essentially begging yes. that you come. I, I want to see you. I want to see you all. We want to look out into the audience and see seats with people in them. Because <laughs> that, because you know, there's not a hell of a lot worse than looking out and, and like tumbleweeds going across mm-hmm. the chairs. And just, just my wife just staring yeah. blankly at Yeah. Her. Oh, no. She'll, she'll be on her phone. Right. <laughs> she'll be on Facebook. This yeah. sucks. Exactly. <laughs> so this is episode 96, Broken Arrow, Bomber 075, and the Missing Nuke. Mm-hmm. That's, that's 69 backwards, by the way. 96? Mm-hmm. Okay. Folks who were children in the years between the late 1940s and the 80s grew up during what was called the Cold War. Yeah, it's, yes. Between the U.S. and her NATO allies in the West and USSR and the Eastern Bloc countries under the Warsaw Pact Uh, in the East. Yeah, I'm one of those. I was not born in the 40s, but uh, uh, I absolutely 
remember the Cold War. I remember movies like uh, The Day After. Yep. Coming out in threads. Being, yeah, being terrified mm-hmm. that. Well, know. we're going to talk about that kind yeah. of stuff as we go. Good. So. Uh, with that Cold War came the nuclear arms race, where the two superpowers, Soviet Russia and the United States, tried to one-up each other, stockpiling massive numbers of nukes to get ahead of their opponent in a numbers game. Which really, th- that race is one where there are no winners. No, the end is mutually assured destruction. Yes, it, it, exactly. The, you, this is a race you don't want to win. No. Everybody loses. Also along with that came increasingly deadly, accurate, long-range missiles capable of circumnavigating the globe to annihilate the enemy on the other side. It's just nothing but comforting. Nothing but comforting. Mm-hmm. The United States was the first country to develop and only one to ever utilize nuclear weapons in the act of war, mm-hmm. prompting the Japanese to surrender after the devastating bombings of their two cities, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, in August of 1945. It's really hard to process that that actually happened. It really did. It, yeah, it, yeah. Imagine that taking place now. Hiroshima was the first city bomb with a nuke. Mm-hmm. The 15-kiloton bomb called Little Boy airburst over the city after being dropped by the crew of the USAF B-29 bomber named Enola Gay Mm -hmm. on the morning of August 6, 1945 at 8.15 a.m. So everybody's going to work. Just waking up, getting ready to head. Yep, yep. Going, going to school. Going to, well, I don't know if school is going on in Japan at, on August 6th. I don't know how their school year looks, but I assume that's what was going on. Yeah. So, yep. and then blammo. Just living your life. Just living your life. Just living your life, and then all of a sudden, what the F? Yeah. Big flash. Mm-hmm. Little Boy's Blast leveled everything within 1.8 kilometers of ground zero. It killed 66,000 people directly and injured another 69,000 people. Mm, Jesus. Three days later, the USAF boxcar, another B-29, dropped the 20-kiloton Fat Boy on Nagasaki, killing 40,000 in the initial blast. And apparently there were fewer casualties because Nagasaki is in a valley, and so it absorbed more of the blast that way. Okay. Yeah. Many more died later on of diseases caused by radiation exposure. Mm-hmm. The risk of cancers, especially leukemia, went up significantly for those who were exposed to radiation from the explosions. Oh, I would imagine. I would imagine it's impossible to calculate the actual death toll. Yeah. Because of how long, like, you know, it, people may have survived from about 40 years before mm-hmm. falling, uh, yeah. passing away due to the uh, radiation. So seeing the power capable of the atomic bomb, the Soviets went to work quickly on their own nuclear program. They tested their first weapon, called First Lightning, at Semipalatinsk on August 29th, 1949. Hmm. And the race was on after that. Yep. In the early 50s, both countries initiated work on extremely more devastating weapons. The largest nuclear weapon ever detonated was dropped by a Tu-95V Soviet long-range bomber. It was predicted that the crew on board only had a 50-50 chance of survival. So that, like... Because they couldn't get away fast enough. They knew this going into it? Going into it. Holy shit. The bomb was codenamed Big Ivan 
or the king of bombs, Tsar Bomba. It weighed 27 metric tons, or 59,525 pounds, and it was 26 feet in length and oh. 6.9 feet in diameter. Holy so this shit. was huge. Yeah. From AtomicHeritage.org, on October 30th, 1961, Tsar Bomba was detonated in the atmosphere at 11.32 Moscow time over the Mityushiska Bay nuclear testing range in the northern Arctic Circle. The bomb was set by barometric sensors to detonate at 13,000 feet and was dropped from a height of 34,000 feet. The Tsar Bomba yield was approximately 1,570 times more powerful than the yield of the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki combined. Shit. And 10 times more powerful than all of the conventional weapons exploded during World War II. Jesus Christ. Every single bomb. <laughs> 10 times more. Tsar Bomba also represented 25% of the estimated yield of the Krakatoa volcanic eruption of 1883, that eruption that caused the loudest sound, as we talked about in our uh, mm. episode on Tunguska. And it was 10% of all nuclear tests by this point. Shit. Right? <laughs> End quote. The maximum design yield of that bomb was a whopping 100 megatons. Oh my God. But the bomb the Soviets tested was equivalent to a measly 57 megatons. So they could have made a bigger explosion if they had really wanted to. Holy shit. Over the years between 1950 and the 2000s, there have been upward of 30 incidents and close calls involving nuclear weapons that could have ended very badly. The most famous of these is the Damascus incident. Mm -hmm. From an article on interestingengineering.com, quote, On September 19, 1980, near Damascus, Arkansas, crewmen were performing maintenance on a Titan II intercontinental ballistic missile, ICBM. A crewman accidentally dropped a wrench into the silo and it punctured the missile's fuel tank. The missile leaked fuel for over eight hours before finally exploding, killing one and injuring 21 others. The blast destroyed the entire compound, but the nuclear warhead was recovered intact. Holy shit. <laughs> Talk about a close call. My God. Oops. Oh, this poor guy. Just like, I dropped shit, a wrench. I what was like, there wasn't there a movie recently or something? I was just watching something recently. Mm. About that. That's a documentary. No, I think it was a it was a dramatization that mm. I watched. But yeah, I like I, I can drop a lot of things at my job. Nothing's gonna explode. <laughs> it's just not, not gonna be yeah. a nuclear explosion. <laughs> yeah. Jesus talk about pressure. No kidding. The second incident that many will remember is that of the Kursk, a mm -hmm. nuclear powered Oscar class Russian submarine that sank during maneuvers after being hit by a practice torpedo. It had 118 sailors on board in the Barents Sea on August 12, 2000. Uh, to many of the families, rescue response by the Russian government was much too slow. It's believed that many of the sailors would have survived in airtight compartments away from the explosion for days afterward, but that's disputed mm. by Russian officials. When the Russians were asked whether or not there were nuclear weapons aboard the Kursk, they simply said, yes, there were. 
and followed that by saying there was nothing to worry about. Of course, of course. Well, did it become fact that it was hit by a practice torpedo? Or, or is that's that is the, that more that's the of the official story? Is that more of the? There's nothing to worry about. Nothing to worry about. You don't know. Is it? You look this way. I don't think you look that way. It's not smart. Pay no attention to the nuclear vessel. vessel. No, no attention to nuclear whistle. You may be asking by now, like, how does Canada fit into this, Mike? How does Canada fit into this? Well, now that you ask, <laughs> we have to go all the way back to the very first incident which could be called a broken arrow, oh, this which, the first. according to Wiktionary, is a U.S. military euphemism for, quote, an accidental event that involves nuclear weapons or nuclear components but does not create the risk of a nuclear war. And also a, a stellar, was it, was it a Nick Cage movie? Or was that Christian Slater? I, don't, I think it was Christian Slater in it. Nick Cage was in it too. Maybe him and Christian Slater. Oh, I thought John Travolta was in Broken Arrow. Ah, fuck, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, it was, it, it was a, a cinematic masterpiece. So the first loss of a nuclear weapon happened right here in British Columbia. This is correct. The public knew of the incident that there was a plane crash, yeah, yeah. but they had no idea until years after what the U.S. military was up to or what Bomber 075 had on board. That's, yeah, yeah. Let's, <laughs> yeah. It's such a terrifying thought, and we'll we'll get it. Yeah. yeah, we'll get into it. With the Cold War came readiness to react in case of attack. Part of the readiness for the United States were long-range bombers. Mm -hmm. The one we're about to introduce you to was a Convair B-36 Peacemaker, which is an ironic name for yeah. a, a nuclear bomber, a model of intercontinental bomber operated by the United States Air Force from 1949 to 1959. It was massive, with a 70-meter wingspan, Jeez. the widest of any warplane ever built, and was the largest piston-driven plane ever, built with six engines. Jeez. These planes were equipped with four bomb bays, built specifically to carry atomic weapons. It was eventually replaced by the B-52, which started its missions in 1952. Hmm. On the day before Valentine's Day, 1950, a crew of 17 total boarded the B-36 Air Force serial number 44-92075, belonging to the 436 Squadron of the Strategic Air Command. Their mission... What was it? That day was a 24-hour-long, non-stop, simulated bombing run from Ellison Air Force Base near Fairbanks, Alaska. Mm -hmm. Southern California and San Francisco were set to play the Soviet Union in an exercise. Mm. No bombs were to be dropped in these runs. Phew. And they had done these hundreds of times. According to Dirk Scepter's book, Lost Nuke, so many missions had been run that, quote, San Francisco had been bombed 600 times in a month. Really? That's, End quote. That's, that's, that's a lot of flights. Yeah. Okay. So these bombers are practicing all the time. Yeah. And the residents had no idea what was going on. Yeah. <laughs> I was no, like, now, we've been bombed 600 times. Now I'm going to question every jet I hear flying over. Probably, you probably should. Even though this was an exercise, Bomber 075 was equipped with 250 pounds of 20 millimeter ammunition for their guns. They also had a more ominous passenger on board with two specialists, 
to deal with it. According to the radio operator, it was the size of a Volkswagen. Mm. It was a Mark IV atomic bomb, a fat man, the very same kind of bomb that had been dropped on Nagasaki. Now, do we get into why they needed to have that on there? Because it just seems like you're just opening up a potential uh, disaster. Like, does it need to actually be? I don't on know. These maybe, maybe runs? they have it for their test runs just in case they're called into service. I mean, maybe, yeah, that's a possibility, you know, yeah. Like, you're on, you're in the middle of your test run, it's like, oh, you know what, we need to divert you. Yeah, you probably don't have time to go and try to fly back. And, mm-hmm. Okay, sure, yeah. I mean, maybe. Bomber 075's final destination was to be their home base at Carswell Air Force Base outside of Fort Worth, Texas. According to a 1993 article by Dirk Scepter in BC Aviator magazine, Trouble began a quarter of the way into the flight, so Mm. about six hours. Mm -hmm. It was extremely cold, and the B-36 began icing up badly due to freezing rain outside. Mm. Even their instruments began to malfunction. Great sign. Not good. Great sign. The first distress call indicating issues due to ice came around 11.25 p.m. Hmm. So it's... One thing I've learned already through this is I thought it was, I thought the plane was going the other way. I thought it was coming from the U.S. Nope. Through Canada to Alaska. Nope. It was coming back. Okay. Interesting. So it was coming down the coast. And they hadn't planned to enter Canadian airspace at all. Oh, okay. Uh, It just ends up that that's what happened. Mm -hmm. A second, more urgent message came soon after the first one. And it goes this way. One engine on fire. Contemplate ditching in Queen Charlotte Sound between Queen Charlotte Island and Vancouver Island. Keep a careful lookout for flares or wreckage. <laughs> what is this? It just makes it up. Car's breaking now. We're going to pull over. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of not like that. No. You have a a, a engine on fire. You have in a, a, thou- in a multi-thousand ton plane carrying, with six engines. Carrying? A bomb. What kind? A nuclear bomb. Oh, yeah. Hmm. We're just going to pull over. Uh, We got a flat. Out of the six engines, three were on fire and a fourth was not running due to a clogged fuel line. Oh, my shit. The heavy bomber was losing altitude and nothing the crew did would keep her in the air long enough to land safely. Oh, my God. The plane was going down just south of Prince Rupert. Imagine being one of the uh, uh, individuals on this plane, eh? Yeah, one of the 17 guys. Like, just, like, you've got so many things to contemplate. Like, a plane crashing just typically aren't going to survive that. But should you, there's a potential uh, nuclear explosion. So you you know what's going on. Everybody's getting their Mae West parachutes on. They're getting ready to go. I would imagine. The first order of business, though, for the specialists was to disarm the bomb that they had on board. What a job that is. You're like, ah, we're crashing. Ah, shit, I still have to work. (laughs) The men assigned to the task busied themselves doing just that. This would include removing the plutonium core, if one existed on the plane. That's the piece that causes the actual nuclear chain reaction between the explosives and uranium casing contained in the bomb. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we all know that. According to Dirk Scepter in his book Lost Nuke, it's unclear whether that task was actually completed. Quote, 
On the order of the bomb commander, the Mark IV bomb was dropped from the aircraft with the intent that it be destroyed over the Queen Charlotte Sound at an altitude of 3,000 feet. Flight engineer Cox reported observing a bright flash followed by a loud sound and a shockwave, end quote. Hmm, so, okay. Yep. So they actually... They had to drop it. But there's more to this story. We're not even remotely close to finished. Okay. The experienced pilot, Captain Harold L. Berry, made the call, and their last radio message came around 11.40 p.m. They were bailing out. Okay, well. Berry then called for his crew to, quote, abandon ship at an altitude of about 5,000 feet. From Dirk Scepter's lost nuke, quote, to save his crew from drowning in the frigid Pacific Ocean, and with a bomb now destroyed, Barry had violated standing orders and turned the giant bomber east toward the Canadian mainland, mm. according to Cox. Just before he ditched, Barry turned off the aircraft's radar signals to prevent disclosure of its position and set the automatic pilot to accomplish a gentle turn back out toward the Pacific. Uh, okay. So why why shut off the radar? He was doing something that was against the rules. But it, if you're planning on surviving, that's going to be found out anyways. Yep. But maybe not. If the plane ends up in the ocean, it's not going to be found out. But you will have been found on land. Oh, well. And, and trying to, you know, you can plot the... You, you, I don't know how much time he had to to ponder this, Scott. Maybe nobody will notice. Parachuting onto land would give a higher chance of survival than dropping into the Pacific Ocean on a cold winter night where drowning was not the only danger. Guaranteed. Hypothermia and death would follow quickly in the frigid water. Yeah, Yeah, this isn't Hawaii, our beaches and our ocean. Before bailing, the radio operator, quote, tied down the transmitter key to produce a steady signal. This would enable rescue units to get a quick fix on the bomber's last position. Okay. So, even though the captain turned off the radar, the radio guy (laughs) just keyed the mic and then tied it down. Yeah. Anyway, so they could triangulate the position that way. Which is the right thing to do. But that's not what happened anyway. Oh. Soon after midnight, Captain Barry was the last to bail out of Bomber 075, leaving it to its fate Hopefully, a harmless crash somewhere in Queen Charlotte Sound. Well, I mean... Not only was the concern for the crewmen, but for the nuke and nuclear material that had been aboard Bomber 075, Mm -hmm. which the Canadian authorities were shocked to learn about from their U.S. counterparts. (laughs) I'd say. A massive search for men and nuke had to be undertaken right away. U.S. Air Force... Navy, Coast Guard, and the Royal Canadian Air Force, Canadian Coast Guard, civil vessels, and ground searchers, including many members of the local indigenous population, all went to work looking for the down bomber and her crew in what was called Operation Bricks, and Bricks is spelled B-R-I-X. They scoured the area by air, sea, and ground, using as many available resources as possible. And if you know that area, it is very remote. (laughs) Very remote and very large. 
A day and a half later, the first two survivors were found shivering around a small fire on Princess Royal Island near the shore. Hmm. Further down the island, another seven men were found grouped around another small fire. All were wet, cold, and hungry, but relatively okay, considering their ordeal. Yeah. An eighth, Staff Sergeant Vitaly Tripodi, was inland three miles and unable to walk. A search party set out to find him. Tripodi had a badly injured foot from a rough parachute landing that had him caught in a tree and hung upside down. Oh, shit. His fellow crew members cut him down and wrapped him in parachutes to keep him warm while they went to the coast for help. Hmm. Dirk Scepter's lost nuke quoted the grateful airman, quote, I lay there in that ice and snow for a day or two until I was found by a Canadian rescue team who got me to a ship, Tripodi recalled. These Canadians who picked me up were the swellest people I ever met. The first thing they did was give me morphine to kill the pain in my foot, then I drank all their cocoa, end quote. <laughs> all of it. It sounds like a grandpa thing to say. It really does. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Yeah. And they were the sweetest, the swellest people. They gave me morphine and, and then cocoa. I, and cocoa. <laughs> it's, it's, wow. It, it's a fun day if you've had morphine yeah, and it, cocoa. It almost sounds worth losing a nuke over. <laughs> morphine and cocoa. <laughs> As the search dragged into the third day, Time and weather were a concern regarding the lives of the seven remaining crew from Bomber 075. By the 15th, 12 of the 17 had been found, but deep, falling snow, cold, and a massive search area thwarted the efforts of the searchers. It's not an area you want to be lost. Princess Royal Island is not exactly a tiny rock in the middle of the ocean. It has an area of 2,250 square kilometers. It's uninhabited, densely forested, and only accessible by boat or plane and full of rocks. Sounds great. Great. It was strongly believed that four of the missing airmen had bailed out too far over the water mm -hmm. to be rescued, mm -hmm. and the fifth might have died somewhere in the brush. Searching began to ramp down in the weeks following, finally ending, on March 10th, 1950. The five men remained missing and were presumed deceased. Yeah. From Dirk Scepter's lost nuke. Quote, Operation Bricks had covered approximately 25,000 square miles. Wow. A total of 40 aircraft had been involved in the search, including seven consolidated PBY Catalinas, two Douglas C-47 Dakotas, we talked about those C-47s before, mm -hmm. a Nordian Norseman, a Beach 18 Expediter, two Sikorsky S-51 helicopters, and an Avro Lancaster from the RCAF. During this operation... The RCAF motor launches Huron and Montagne were employed for 21 and 17 days respectively. Supply vessel Songhe clocked 253 hours during 30 days on Operation Bricks, mm. end quote. Mm. So the search for the bomber was an expensive one. Yeah. On many levels. Scepter also mentions that a B-29 that had been involved in the search crashed near its base in Montana, killing eight of its 15 crew who had gone back to refuel and rejoin oh. in the second day of the search. Shit, I had no idea about that. Yeah, so other people died trying yeah. to rescue these guys. Well, it's what makes search so difficult, what, yeah. be it military or just somebody lost in the woods, is that it's very dangerous. And 
don't take risks because people could die just trying to exactly to, to to save you from yeah so and it's this is the perfect example aside from the missing crewman where was the plane and what had become of the remains of the bomb well these are it's a great question and we'll take a break right here and come back with the conclusion of that it's good to hear And we're back. All the searches for the wreckage of the bomber in the areas predicted turned up nothing. Mm. There was no trace of bomber 075. And, and so... Uh, People and, saw like an oil slick yeah. here in the water and they thought, okay, maybe it's Man. there. There was just no sign of the bomber. It was gone. So I, I, I might not have caught it, but was the pilot one of the surviving people? Yep. Okay. So, so would did, I'm hoping he would be like, well, here's where I told it to go. Yeah, which is why they were looking in okay. that place. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, because he, he his thinking is water. Yeah, that's where he set it to go. The wreckage of bomber zero seventy five was discovered accidentally oh. more than three years later during the search for another missing aircraft. Oh, on the seventeenth of August nineteen fifty three, a De Havilland DH one hundred four Dove two A, flown by a Texas oil man named Ellis left Ketchikan, Alaska, for Bellingham, Washington, the mm. same airport Carol and I flew from uh, to and from Vegas. Yes, we, it's where I've also caught the Vegas flight. The plane with Ellis, his wife, two daughters, and a 17-year-old young man did not arrive in Bellingham, so mm. everybody mm -hmm. goes to work looking mm. for it. The first search for that plane up and down the coast from Alaska, across B.C. and into Washington, did not turn up any sign of that plane. But there was wreckage discovered 350 kilometers north hmm. of the Princess Royal Island and almost 200 kilometers inland on Mount Colaget, a remote spot around 100 kilometers north-northwest of Hazleton, B.C., at about 6,000 feet above sea level was what was left of Bomber 075. <sighs> so it had flown for... Another 350 kilometers. Yes. <sighs> all and by itself. I'm, all by itself. And it, it, they had bailed at 5,000 feet, and somehow it ended up at 6,000 feet above sea level. <sighs> right? So, so amazing. And I, I'm, I'm trying to picture, like, the people who found it. Like, did they, I'm wondering if they immediately knew, like, oh, this must be... Said broken arrow. They well, they they had to bit. they had to determine by the size of the the wreckage. Yeah, that it was in fact that. And then uh, once you realize that, you're like, well, I'm not checking it out. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, there were a lot of pieces and those kind of things. Yeah. That, but anyway, Oilman Ellis's plane was eventually found 35 miles east of Ketchikan, Alaska. Just so you know, all aboard had perished in that crash. Yeah, I was wondering. That's that's terrible. It took four attempts to reach Bomber 075 on foot. <laughs> they could see it from the air. Mm. They could reach it from the air, but there was no way for them to get a team to it because the terrain was so treacherous. Yeah, and, you know, their GPS wasn't a thing. No, it wasn't. <laughs> they knew where it was, though. Yeah. They could read a map and do coordinates on a map. Fine, but no, it's a, it, yeah, the terrain must be ridiculous there. Mm-hmm. They wanted to recover anything sensitive, 
Yeah. Obviously explosives, if there were any. Uh-huh. And the personal effects of the crew. It was also important to resolve what exactly had taken place on the flight, what brought the plane down. As well, to prevent the remains from falling into the wrong hands, they were supposed to blow the plane up when they found it. Oh, seriously? Yeah. So in August of 1954, according to Dirk Scepter's lost new former HMCS Cayuga radio operator Percy Lotzer, now working for a water bomber company, remembers the events that took place in Smithers, which was the staging point for searchers mm-hmm. before moving on to Hazleton and eventually the wreck of Bomber 075. Good old Smithers. Smithers was invaded by a large contingent of U.S. Air Force aircraft and helicopters, he recalled. A shroud of secrecy was wrapped around this event. <laughs> just, just imagine, yeah, imagine the confusion and curiosity and speculation amongst the Smithers citizens. Yep, and like, there was would, a lot of that. That might, Yeah, no kidding. For nine days, the team undertook their recovery and the operation to destroy the remains of the plane. There was not much left of it to begin with, but they were looking for something extremely important, too. Uh-huh. From Las Nuke, quote, USAF servicemen had told Smithers resident Marcella Love that they were looking for, quote, an object about the size of an eight-inch ball contained in a lead box. It was of the utmost importance to recover it, and if the thing exploded, it would take the whole Kispiox Valley with it. According to local resident Harry Kisprink, he also noted that Marcella's sister-in-law, Ruth Love, independently confirmed the description of what the Americans sought. Like, I hate, I hate laughing because I'm not trying to be like, oh, this is hilarious. Well, I'm just trying to imagine hearing that. It's like there's a ball eight yeah. inches around and uh, just be careful because it could blow up this whole area. Although she later changed her story, and nobody knows why, Marcella was said to mention the 8-inch lead ball was a rumor around the area that she'd heard. Mm -hmm. This 8-inch ball most likely referred to the missing plutonium core, or pit, that U.S. authorities claimed was not on on board (laughs) Bomber 075. (laughs) Folks in Smithers in the early 1950s would not have been educated on the construction of nuclear weapons. Yeah. So this would have been a fantastical thing to have been made up. Well, I'm sure, yeah. So someone in the know, probably one of the U.S. soldiers, had been running their mouth. Yeah, I can't, like, and this is where, like, I I struggle with conspiracies. Because just something like this, you know, in a small town, yeah, somebody's going to run their mouth. Yeah. People can't keep secrets. They're terrible. Hey, lady, you want to hear a story? (laughs) Guess what? We're looking for an eight-inch lead ball that may contain plutonium and could blow the crap out of this place. <laughs> have you seen it? Can I have another beer? <laughs> Holy crap. Can you imagine? And I'm sure that they probably wouldn't even know what the fuck plutonium is. No. In Smith. And so essentially they're thinking like an alien crashed. It pretty much. An alien crashed and their, their weapon will blow us all up. If the core had actually been aboard, this meant that the Mark IV bomb may have been fully operational at some point, and thanks to the weapons experts on the mission, it had actually been disarmed prior to being dropped, because the resulting explosion with the core in place would have been a much more devastating and obviously mm-hmm. an atomic blast. Mm-hmm. The public has yet to be made aware whether the plutonium core was on the plane or not, 
nor has any information been made public about whether it was ever recovered or not. It's a frightening thought that there could still be a highly radioactive chunk of plutonium laying in the Pacific after being jettisoned by a flight crew or somewhere in the BC wilderness waiting for someone to discover it while they're hunting bunnies. You're saying this is like now? Yes, This right now. Jesus. Some don't believe it existed, but many who know the story well do believe that it was there. Holy shit. According to Lost Nuke, four detonation plugs only used in a live nuke were discovered on the plane. The manifest of the bomber's load list mentions an 11,000-pound item, the Fat Man Bomb, Mm. and also a 67-pound item locked away in its own compartment. Oh, well, you know, it's probably just like somebody's luggage. This manifest does not specifically identify what this item was, but its weight is, quote, in the exact right range for a plutonium core, said an expert. They wouldn't mention it unless it was important. Mm. This is actually the first item on the list under cargo in miscellaneous. Holy Just the 67-pound plutonium, plutonium core. Plutonium core. Yeah. yeah, no big deal. That's all it is. It's no big deal. Where is it today, Scott? I don't know, but how much do they go for on Nobody the Nobody knows. Oh, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Pieces of the story continue to trickle out. For example, a recently declassified document indicates there was actually a body found amid the wreckage. So who was it, and why had he stayed aboard? Holy crap. What do you think about this story, Scott? Oh, so many things. Right? Uh, my first thought is, can we get to this wreckage site? Well, if they had trouble getting there in 1959... We could probably walk there. No, I uh, think you and I would have definitely... Uh, well-trained soldiers in 1959. Men who were through World War II. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I see what you get. Mike and Scott, fat man and little boy. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not going to go so <laughs> That would be the name of our documentary finding. It should be. Uh, so is there still wreckage there? Or yeah, the wreckage fact, still, the people take pictures. Have so they, they pictures haven't blown it. it up? They blew up parts of it. Mm. But, interesting. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, I, oof. so my gut is telling me they know where the core is. That, I don't know. Uh, my, my gut is telling me that uh, it was probably. Uh, there are stories about somebody who recently went to hunting in the area and happened to be a compatriot of Dick Cheney. And this was during the Bush presidency and uh, saw the pictures at a local business. Yeah. And questioned the people in a very authoritarian way about had they ever found anything or seen anything. (laughs) Well, see, so my gut is telling me that the crew yoinked that, uh, plutonium core and shoved it out, out of the plane and into the ocean. Hopefully. But, okay, that's, that's if they a, did that, though, it's still there in the ocean somewhere. Yeah. In 2016, someone thought they had found uh, a part of the bomb in the ocean, but it turned out to be part of some machinery. Oh, okay. But it, it wasn't the bomb. Because that, like, and, and, um, and perhaps the crew, for whatever reason, because maybe they breached some protocol, just swore to never... Tell the truth about it. Yeah. Now, because that would 
that maybe would... the, maybe the guy who they found in the wreckage was the guy who was supposed to deal with that. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe, and and because you know, that would that would maybe he opened the box by accident. <laughs> oh shit! Mm. And that but that would explain why the military was searching for it, right? But can't find it. Because you would think, like, you could, there's got to be some uh, plutonium, like, uh, Geiger counter. Like, there's got to be some... Well, yeah, like, there, are, there are Geiger counters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but you would think there's got to be some kind... Like, it's it's 2019. There's got to be It was some, in a lead case, though. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the lead. case would probably break open upon... Well, how, how do you know? I'm a fine... I'm are a, you an expert in plutonium cores for... So what I haven't ever told you is oh, in God. my free time, I, I, I build lead cases. Great. Yeah. So Canada, for those who are unaware, and some of our younger listeners may be entirely unaware mm-hmm. of this. I bet you. We do have a history with nuclear yep. weapons. Yeah. It's quite an extensive one, to tell you the truth. Yeah, can- Canada was not always... Nuclear weapon well, yeah. f- free. And I think that may be a shock to a lot of our younger listeners. After the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, the U.S. set plans in motion to fortify its defenses. On New Year's Eve 1963, CFB North Bay, North Bay, Ontario, received what is believed to be Canada's first shipment of U.S.-made nuclear warheads for use on Bomark missiles stationed nearby. Protesters who knew of the delivery and photographers were present covering the event. So, that, yes, it happened. Yeah, and, and a quick thing on the Cuban uh, Missile Crisis. That, that must have been a terrifying period to live through, Mike. Totally. Yeah. You must have been scared. I wasn't there. Oh. From John Clearwater's book, Canadian Nuclear Weapons, The Untold Story, as summarized in Wikipedia, quote, Through 1984, Canada would deploy four American-designed nuclear weapons delivery systems accompanied by hundreds of warheads, 56 CIM-10 Bomark surface-to-air missiles, 430 MGR-1 Honest John rocket systems armed with a total of 16 W-31 nuclear warheads the Canadian Army deployed in Germany, 1,080 nuclear W-25 Genie rockets carried by 54 CF-101 Voodoos, those are planes, estimates of 90 to 210 tactical 20 to 60 kiloton nuclear warheads assigned to six CF-104 Starfighter squadrons, about 90 aircraft, based with NATO in Europe. There was a lack of open sources detailing exactly how many warheads were deployed, Mm -hmm. end quote. So that's not exactly firecrackers. Uh, no. No, sir. Yeah. So a man I used to work with in the Bridgewater Cemetery, Mm -hmm. he was a former member of the Canadian Air Force. Oh, Royal Canadian Air Force. And he was stationed at CFB North Bay during this time. And although he wasn't a technician or directly involved with the maintenance or possible launch of a nuke, Mm -hmm. he was security for those people who oversaw those things. Oh, wow. So he was working with nuclear weapons. Yeah. Yeah, right here in Canada, yeah, yeah. Canadian soil. Well, and I, I can remember in the early 80s, my mom would take me to uh, protests. Yeah, because your mom and dad are both pretty politically active. Folk. Oh, very. Yeah, yeah very, very, Damn very. hippies. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. 
explains me. They, uh, yeah, no, and so yeah, my mom and dad would always take me to these to, to rallies and marches, and I can remember I can remember going to a couple of. Uh, you know, getting dukes out of Canada, and yeah, uh, yeah, we go, yeah, I was very, I was very young. I remember the protest against the uh, cruise missile tests in Alberta mm. in 1983. Okay, I really I don't remember, remember that one. Yeah. Okay. I was like yeah. 14. Yeah, Canada was officially disarmed in 1984, but we still fall under that umbrella of nuclear protection being a NATO nation. Yes. Not only was Canada home to nuclear weapons, a team of scientists in Montreal were instrumental in assisting France and Britain with their nuclear programs through the development of a superior method for the extraction of pure plutonium. Oh, okay. So, yeah, mm. we helped those Involved, two nations yeah. become nuclear. But spoiler alert, the, the it was all a a trick and all those, ex, if those nukes exploded, just poutine would shoot out of the bombs. <laughs> I hope that would be the case. Yeah, it would be just poutine and gravy, poutine, gravy, yeah. cheese curds. It would actually bring peace to the world. It, yeah, but I, I doubt that's actually true. Poutine peace. Kids growing up today train for active shooter drills in their schools. While we lived in the era of mutually assured destruction, fearing that our planet would be vaporized at any time by the sheer number of weapons that would be released if a nuclear war started between the U.S. and Russia. And it was a real fear it, that yeah. we had. I, 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 I shit you not, especially uh, the, the movie The Day After. I, mm -hmm. I, I literally can remember living in fear that this was a possibility for mm -hmm. quite a while, that, yep. that uh, nuclear destruction uh, was an absolute viable possibility it was very yeah the cold war was a pretty scary goddamn time i actually collect um Nukes? nuclear nuclear war movies oh and, okay. uh, and tv shows and stuff yeah yep i have a whole whack of them on do you have drive. the day after i do i'm gonna need to and i have that. threads as well yeah have you ever seen that one the british no one? because that was very that was like aired once wasn't it yeah it, i have a copy of it that. was just so terrifying yeah but I, there's a bunch of them. There's one that's really moving, which is about a, a British cartoon of an older couple oh. who are living in rural England and the bomb goes off and they're essentially trying to survive this. It's it's probably the most heartbreaking oh, fuck. thing that I've ever seen. Oh, we need to sit down and have a nuke day. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll do that. Yeah. In 1951... Archer Productions was hired by the U.S. Civil Defense Administration to produce a film for children. Oh, okay. It was an animated film called Duck and Cover, in which Bert the Turtle taught kids and adults what to do in the case of an atomic blast. It's now public domain, so we'll share a link to the entire thing in our show notes. Yes, please. Here's a little ditty that starts the film. Terrifying. Uh, you know, nuclear, nuclear, nuclear. Uh, yeah, fuck every time. Nuclear 
Yes. Yeah, I just, uh, damn you, Bush. You used to always say nuclear, and I just, okay. Anyways, uh, that just sounds fun. Nuclear destruction sounds fun. Well, I don't think it really is. And it's, that's so so creepy. And cover. It's really creepy. Yeah, incredibly. So the film goes on to describe an atomic bomb blast. Let's hear how that goes. We all know the atomic bomb is very dangerous. Since it may be used against us, we must get ready for it, just as we are ready for many other dangers that are around us all the time. Now, we must be ready for a new danger, the atomic bomb. First, you have to know what happens when an atomic bomb explodes. You will know when it comes. We hope it never comes, but we must get ready. It looks something like this. There is a bright flash, brighter than the sun, brighter than anything you've ever seen. If you are not ready, and did not know what to do, it could hurt you in different ways. It could knock you down hard or throw you against a tree or a wall. It is such a big explosion, it can smash in buildings and knock signboards over and break windows all over town. But if you duck and cover like Bert, you will be much safer. So let's scare the shit out of the kids. That's number one. He totally neglected to mention you will probably be vaporized. Well, if you, you're yeah, ducking I mean, and covering, ducking and cover means nothing if you're that close. No, it does. He's it's talking protection. about somebody within the. No, it's totally. You could be like a block away from the epicenter. If you duck and cover, she goes right over you. Well, okay. Yeah. It's the if that song has taught me anything. Well, duck and cover. Oh God. Oh my. What a. Next, they describe what radiation burn might feel like and what you should do to prevent it. Oh, that's Guess what? It's informative. Duck and cover. Duck. But here you go. Like, let's listen to this. You know how bad sunburn can feel. The atomic bomb flash could burn you worse than a terrible sunburn, especially where you're not covered. Now, you and I don't have shells to crawl into like Bert the Turtle, so we have to cover up in our own way. First, you duck, and then you cover. And very tightly, you cover the back of your neck and your face. Duck and cover underneath a table or desk or anything else close by. Does this guy give you the creeps? Oh, completely. He's getting a lot of joy out of this. He's just, uh, yeah, don't worry. Just duck and cover and everything. Make sure you cover the back of your neck. Yeah, with your hands, which will be radiation burned. (laughs) And you'll lose them to some sort of weird cancer. But would you rather lose your hands or the back of your neck, Mike? Well, I don't know. The back of my neck is sort of fat. Wow. I could lose. Oh. <laughs> That's. Yeah. Make sure you cover the back of your neck. It's like Phil Hartman doing a skit. <laughs> hey there, Bobby. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It really is. It, yeah. That, yeah. And this is like dead serious. Oh, absolutely. Dead serious. Yeah. So after another few minutes of terrifying discussion about nuclear war, the film ends this way. Let me guess there's some ducking and or covering. I bet you there will be. But there might not be any grown-ups around when the bomb explodes. Then you're on your own. Remember what to do, friends. Now tell me right out loud. What are you supposed to do when you see the flash? Duck and cover. Duck and cover. So not only 
will there be a nuclear blast? Your parents won't be there. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, shit. Oh, my God. This is horrible. Oh, my God. You So you're going to, like, if you survive, if you've properly ducked and covered. Like, I, you you're know. You're on what? your own. Live in, live in this post-apocalyptic world on your own, Timmy. I wouldn't be comfortable playing this for your 12-year-old. Like, seriously. Yeah, the terrors you would have. Like, it's just horrifying. Yeah. Like, no wonder kids are so messed up now, like, with all the talk about, like, the environment and everybody, everything's going to come to an end soon. And, like, oh, my gosh. What what thing to put on kids? Oh, but, anyway. but. It's true. As long as you duck and cover. As long as you duck and cover. You can't fine. duck and cover from the climate. No, I do. I apply it to every aspect of my life. The moment I I detect fear oh, or I, I, I get fear, I duck and cover. Duck and cover. Yeah. If I think my boss is upset at me, I duck and cover. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If, some, if it's somebody yelling on, on the SkyTrain on, on public transit. Duck and cover. I duck and cover. There you go. Yeah. So far. It's a I've thing. Made, I've made it. Yeah, you made it this far. You're 46 far. years old. Yep, and uh, and doing well. Ducking so, and covering. Yeah. I suggest you all start ducking and covering. Ducking and covering. Anytime you feel at all threatened. Although Canada no longer has nuclear weapons on our soil, there are eight countries in the world. USA, Russia, UK, France, China, India, Pakistan, and North Korea with the declared nuclear weapons. Yeah. It's suspected that Israel has the bomb, too, since as early as 1960, but they haven't officially declared this. And South Africa had some, but has since dismantled them, and it's believed that other nations, like Iran, are working toward their own bombs. For the most part, just like super stable countries. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Yeah, nothing, you know, well, the U.S., yeah, now that's, I feel completely comfortable well, you know, them having. the threat isn't over yet. As of 2018, thanks to the failure of world leaders to deal with looming threats of nuclear war and climate change, the doomsday clock sits at two minutes to midnight. Great. Putting us the closest to mass destruction since 1953 and the USA's Operation Ivy thermonuclear tests. I mean, I don't see I don't see any problems arising from the dick wagon between Russia and, or between uh, North Korea and the U.S. Like, yeah, no, no, I I couldn't I couldn't feel more comfortable with the state of nukes these days. Is there anyone insane enough to ever push that? Button? No, no, not 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 this day and age. We've got. I trust the I trust these leaders, Mike. All of them. All of them. Most stable folks ever. Yeah. Stable yeah. geniuses, even. Yeah. Yeah. We'll repost a link to Nuke Map, uh, the one that we had yeah, in the Tunguska was, event. That was great. Yeah. So you can see what the effect of a nuke of any size would be on your hometown. It, it, it's comforting. Yeah. You can play around with yeah. the, with different uh, yields of nuclear weapon. It's really comforting to know uh, um, the many different directions you can die. Yeah, totally. All yeah. the different things that Yeah, can oh, if it lands over there, dead. If it lands over there, dead. If it lands over there, dead. Yeah. Yeah. Just, it's, uh, it. Sleep well, kitties. Yeah. It ro- those thoughts rock me to sleep every night. Yeah. So that's it for this week's story. Yeah. That's a, that's a dilly of a pickle we just went through there. A dilly of a pickle. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. We didn't get any voicemails this week, although I had a few weird messages. Okay. One was about, uh, about seagulls, which... <laughs> Anyway, 
What? And another one was uh, saying that we were probably going to res- be responsible for multiple deaths. Yeah, you mentioned. I think you mentioned that on the live show. Is yeah, that the one? I don't want to get into it. That's quackery. Yeah, it's it was very bizarre. Wow. So if you want to leave us a voicemail. <laughs> Speaking of quackery. <laughs> you can do so at 604-595-2448. And yeah, we'll play your quackery, yeah, unless you're really rude. If you're rude, we won't do it. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's... Maybe it depends maybe, on the... Maybe that'll be more... Fun. Yeah, if it's like... Like Mr. McGillicuddy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he hasn't called back. He so hasn't? No. I'm kind of surprised, Sunshine I probably, I probably, McGillicuddy. He, yeah, I probably broke him. When you called him Sunshine? Yeah, he probably went on a rampage. He's probably that we waiting for about. you in a bush. It's possible. It's possible. <laughs> yeah. yeah, or he just like, it's like he's just still in, sitting in the exact same spot doing this. <laughs> you, you're actually making a face just like I'm sure he looks. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. And a reminder, and we'll remind you again, we are going to be having a live show at the Vancouver Podcast Festival on November 9th at 10 p.m. at the Rio Theater. Please come get your tickets at the Vancouver Podcast Festival website. Please. Please come. Please. We'd love to see you there. We need to see you there. <laughs> yeah. We want to say thank you to a couple of folks. Some and, great and folks. We're remiss for because we got these... Uh, Magnets from Jess Huey yep. from Clemenson, South Carolina, what a little she? while ago. Yep. She made these herself out of yeah. pottery. Yeah. And they say dark poutine. She gave us a green one and a brown one. And I've got one on my fridge. Oh, you've got one on your yeah, fridge? Yeah, there was oh, three. okay. Okay, there were three. There was three. I didn't just give you What my, color is the other one? I don't remember. <laughs> I think it was uh, the. I think it was two of the dark blue ones. Oh, there you yeah. go. And so she says, Scott and Mike, thank you so much for all y'all do. Absolutely love the podcast. I feel like we've been friends for ages. Just wanted to send you a couple magnets. I made more goodies coming soon. Yeah. Jess Huey from Clemenson, South Carolina. Thank you so much, Jess. These are awesome. She is really talented. I love she, these. She's got an Instagram page dedicated to her. Yeah, uh, I was pottery looking at that. And stuff. Yeah. She's a very talented cat. So thanks, Jess. Yeah, go. I, I sorry, I don't know her page off. Uh, her Instagram page off. Off my. Send it to me, and I'll post it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, because uh, you should really check check it out and, and buy some of her stuff. And we got a, a message from. We got a message, and we got a message from Jillian Adair. Yeah, she lives in Winnipeg. Manitoba. I always have a, a, a warm spot in my heart for Winnipeg. And she writes, Mike and Scott, I'm so in love with dark poutine. I have an hour commute to work every day. Ugh. Listening to you guys really makes my day. My cottage is in White Shell by Falcon Lake. That so sounds... we did the UFO Falcon Lake yeah. episode. Yeah. So I'm at Falcon often. I loved your episode on the UFO. So when I saw these, and they're two magnets that have Falcon Lake on them. Yep. And a picture of a little UFO. Yeah, with um, a date on it. I knew I had to send them to you both. Hope you enjoy. Keep up the great work. You make weirdos like me very happy. Jillian oh, it, I, as I tell my daughters, uh, it is a badge of honor being called a weirdo. Oh now. my gosh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, so... Uh, I would have been much cooler today, I think, than I was oh, when I was a kid. Oh, oh, absolutely. I was I a com- fucking weirdo. I, I, I absolutely <laughs> agree. Yeah, I would have thrived. Yeah, I think you and I would have been like the prom queen and king. Yeah, together? Right, together. Together. Yeah, well, that'd be lovely, right? Whatever floats people's boats. Yeah, I have a boat. 
You, I, you I almost got a boat. I about getting a boat, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. I don't wow. need a boat. It's podcaster life. The bu- yeah, I don't have that much money. <laughs> no, I, my there was a sign on uh, a friend of dad's boat that said, a reminder, a boat is a hole in the water into which you throw money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a- yeah. So before we go, we want to give some shout-outs to our Patreon patrons. Yeah. This week, we have one from a place I don't think we've had any others. Oh, my goodness. Where, it's Hannah Smith, and she's from Singapore. Sounds like a traditional Singaporean name. No, it does not. <laughs> wow. So she's probably... Wow. She's probably... Okay, Hannah Smith. She's probably Russian. Emigrated to... Uh, S- Singapore? Yeah. From Russia? I guess so. so Somebody it, Smith is a very popular Russian sure. last name. Smithsky. Smithsky. I drink. David Menzies from Victoria, BC. Oh. Yeah. David, we didn't see you at our meetup. Yeah. But anyway. You didn't see me there either. But. Well, that's because you jammed out. I had a thing. But thank you so much, uh, Hannah and David. Yes. We very much appreciate that. Yes. We've got a bunch, actually, from British Columbia this week. Represent. Nicole Brennan from Coquitlam. And that Coquitlam is one of my favorite name places to say. So I've, I always, I, I may have brought this up before, and I'll bring it up again. So you have Burnaby and Coquitlam. They're right next to each other. You get Burquitlam. When, yeah, if you're kind of in the middle area, you say like you live in Burquitlam. Why wasn't it called Coquitlam? Coquitlam. It's a legit question. I don't know. Anyways. Dania, Av- Dania Avery from New Westminster. Your oh, old stomping grounds. My, my, my youngsterhood. Your youngsterhood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's where I spent my youngsterhood. New West was, uh, was the first capital of BC, right? Yeah, the royal city. Yeah. 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 That's very cool. Yeah. Thank you, Dania. Amy Yusefian from San Francisco, California. Eh? That's the place I want to go. I want to go there I too. I want to go to San Fran. Carol and I were talking that uh, we should be going to California next because we've done Vegas three times now. Mm-hmm. We haven't done California since 2001. Do it. It was even before 9-11 we went to California. I've never been to California aside from us in LAX. Yeah. Uh, LAX stinks. Yeah. That's the only that's that's the closest I've been in Cali. Is that what yeah, we had a good time in LAX. It was just so pleasant. So much seating available. I, I hate that place. So much seating available. Oh my god. Yeah. Catherine Catalano. But yeah, San Francisco, I wanna go. Yeah. Because it's all Me hilly too. and nice. So. Yeah. It looks it looks sort of like Vancouver. They should the put that on the brochures. It's so hilly and nice. Hilly and nice. Catherine Catalano from St. Louis, Missouri. Hey, Catherine. And your blues were just in the White House there the other day. Oh, really? With the Stanley Cup. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, well, they won. Did they? Yes, Scott. They won the Stanley Cup this year. We've we've talked about my falling out with the NHL. With the NHL, yeah. But, yeah, so congrats to the St. Louis Blues, and thank you, Catherine, for supporting our show. Very much so. 
Uh, Stephanie Godden from Burke, New York. I don't know where that is. No. Well, I know it's in New York. It is in New York. That I get. So we, you can be guaranteed that is in New York State somewhere. I'm going to think that it's in the South North Territory. South North, yeah. West East. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah. it is of, definitely there. Of New York. Of New York. State. State. Yeah. Victoria Grande from Richmond Hill, Ontario, and I don't know if that's just grand, grand with an E, but I wanted to say Grande. It's my favorite size of Starbucks. Grande? Yeah. Yeah, mine too, yeah. actually. Yeah. 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 I don't like venti because it's then a, I have to pee for three days. Yeah, it's a, it's it's excessive. 20 ounces is yeah. a lot of coffee. Well, and I like to get two Grandes in a day. To get two ventis, like, that's yeah. just, no, all done. You're asking for trouble. Very much. Yeah. Maddie Meredith from Los Altos, California. That sounds like a great place, too. It does. Los Altos. It does, yeah. Thank it's, you so yeah. much, Maddie. Yeah. Los Altos, California. Los Altos, California. I wonder what Altos means. Shoes. No, that's a, a Zappos. Yeah, that's close. There's a, there's a toast in there. <laughs> no. Yeah. I think. Zapateria is a shoe store. So, yeah, anyway. Yeah. Look at me. That's the only we're, Spanish I know. We're reverse engineering the name. <laughs> Los Altos. Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 uh, it's like uh, San Diego. Yeah. It does not mean Wales. No. Hoo hoo. Like uh, Ron Burgundy said. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Kelly Graves. Yep. Yep. From Sudan. She's from Sudan. Wow. Yeah. That's our first Sudanese uh, patron. Thank it, you very much, Kelly Graves. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, she, uh, she, what she does there is pretty exciting. The graves? No way. Okay. Preposterous. What does she do? She's a news anchor. She's a new a Sudanese news anchor. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, you wouldn't think that. Oh, they're probably looking for. It's probably she's probably a diversity hire. Probably so. Yeah. Probably so. But however she got the role, she she just kicks ass at it. Oh, yeah. She is great. She doesn't speak... She was the most qualified for the yeah. job. She doesn't speak the language at all. Oh, that's problematic. At all. Does she just, like, make weird gestures at the screen? No, no, she just does it in English. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And, and then yeah. they subtitle her. They subtitle... Exactly. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah, because, um, I mean, that just makes sense. Yeah, why would you have hire somebody who doesn't? Anyway. Yeah. But, oh, as far as English-speaking Sudanese news anchors, news anchors no go, like Kelly. top of the charts, top Kelly. Of the top of the charts. Top of the pops. Uh, John Greenwood from Wesley, New South Wales in oh, Australia. I don't know why, but I was really hoping he would say John Greenwood from uh, Brownwood. From Brown, no. So, yeah. He's from Auss Aussie. He's an Aussie. Yeah. Yeah. Hello, nice lady. <laughs> Are you a bed winner? <laughs> what a box. <laughs> Teresa Dixon from Manning, Alberta. Oh. Thanks, Teresa. Thanks, thanks, so Teresa. much. Yeah. Manning, Alberta. Yeah. I've yeah. never been to Manning, Alberta. I've been through Manning Park in BC. Uh, have you been to Peyton Manning, Alberta? No. You I hear he's got a lot of Super Bowl rings, though. Yeah. Uh, Carolyn Norwood from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, home of the Pittsburgh Penguins. Correct, Sydney And the Pittsburgh Pirates. Yeah, there's a lot of Pittsburgh. And the Pittsburgh Steelers. Yep, a lot of Pittsburgh going on. There's lots of P 
Pittsburghian. Yeah, they've got some good. They've had some good sporting teams. They have had some good sporting teams. Yeah, I used to like the Pittsburgh Pirates because uh, their hat, baseball hat, yeah. the one with the what, yellow stripes yeah, around yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved yeah, that hat when yeah. I was a kid. I don't know why. And the same hair. I loved it too. I mean, it was just black with yellow yeah. stripes going around. It, it. was oldie time too. It was yeah. Very oldie. Yeah. Well, thank you, Carolyn. Very much so. Cynthia Casey from Van Nuys, California. I think of souped-up cars when I think of Van Nuys. I don't know why. That's a great thing to think of. I used to have have a, a magazine that was like all about like hot cars, like drag racers and and hot rods mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Oh, that yeah. I I read every, and they were always talking about Van Nuys. Yeah. Did you know my new car has a turbo? Yes. Okay. Yeah, you told me that. Just thought I'd bring it up. Thanks, Cynthia Casey. Caitlin Payne from Covington, Kentucky. Covington. Kentucky sounds like a place that I should go. I'm just going to say, I hate Colby Covington, who is a UFC fighter. Okay. I don't know if... I don't think he's related to the actual place, Covington, Kentucky. Mike, I just felt like I needed to bring that up. Leave Caitlin alone. She's she's very nice. She's become a patron. This is not about Caitlin. My hatred for Colby Covington. Yeah. Uh, Caitlin... You rock, though. There you go. Case Evans from Seattle, Washington, just that, over the border. I that love, name. Love some Seattle. That Case, name. Case Evans. Right? Hey, this is Case Evans on CKAA. Speaking of, uh, of news anchors. Yeah, exactly. This is Case Evans. This is Case Evans coming at you. That was ACDC. <laughs> Next up, Aerosmith. <laughs> Just, just the bands, dude. Like, no, no. dude looks like a lady. He threw a little Australian into that. What? He did. Dude looks like a lady. <laughs> oh well, some southern. So thank you, K Sevens from thank Seattle. You. Stephanie Pierce from Toronto, Ontario. She upped her pledge, and I said Ontario because you I did. thought it was funny. Jeez, yeah, Mike. But it's it's not really terrible because you were just there and you loved it, and I. From Toronto, Ontario, upped her pledge. That is awesome. I love Ontario. I, I would like to go someday. I've been there, and I, I used to poo-poo it, and I love it now. Yeah, I, yeah. I've yeah. i grown up with a lot of despise of it just because it was, uh, oh, you think you're better than Vancouver. That's not true. You think you're better than Vancouver. They don't. But I'm sure it's actually They're just nice a great people. place. I'm sure it is. Catherine Lico from Norwich, Ontario. Another oh, Ontarian. Norwichian. Yes, exactly. And Stacy Rogers from oh. Toronto, Ontario. Any, so, any relation to Buck? Buck Rogers? Yeah, I doubt it. Yeah. Well, so Catherine, Stephanie, you. and Stacy, all those Ontarians in a row. In a row. Thank you so much. Wow. Muchos gracias. That's or as that. they say in Ontario, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's what they do. Well, yes. Eh? Eh? Alexander James. He's from Farringdon, England, and he upped his his pledge, too. Oh, sweet, sassy molasses. So thank Al. you, Alexander. Yeah, much appreciated. Yeah. And Sarah, Sarah, last on our Patreon list is Sarah Madjor. Oh, okay, yes, Sarah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Where's Sarah from? Oh, Sarah, you don't know where she's from? No. Oh, Nepal. Oh, she's Nepalese. That's she's, interesting. She's, okay, she's what ne- does she do in Nepal? Is she a... Is she a Sherpa? No, she she's okay. She doesn't. Uh, I don't want to like 
ruin her gig. Okay. But she's a hustler. She's a pool hustler. Oh, she hustles pool. Yeah. I don't. Good I hope her. I'm not. I hope I'm not like. Good for her. You know, pool hope, hustling is a tough gig. It is. It is. And, and she's extremely successful at it. She watched the color of money. Oh, the Paul Newman, yeah. Tom Cruise, and was just uh, and was just like, this is my calling. This is my calling. And boy. Is she ever hitting home runs? I know it's a different sport, but you know what I'm saying. Like she, yeah, she, she's a, she's a hustler. She's a pool hustler, a pool shark. She's a shack. Yep, yep, yeah. And she's uh, she actually only has to. She's so successful at it. She only has to play one game a year. There you go. Yep, it makes uh, makes big bucks That's just fantastic. from that one game. Nice. So yeah, it's a good it's a good gig she's got going on in Nepal. There you go. Yeah, so that's where it, people don't know, but Nepal is like the hub of pool. We did get some donut money. We did? Uh, yep. From Regina Fogarty. And I don't know where Regina's from. Oh, it looks. Oh, wow. Mm. She's from Tipperary in Ireland. Whoa. Uh, you know, it's a long way to Tipperary. I always say it takes a long one to tickle Mary, but uh, anyway. <laughs> That's because I'm dirty. So Regina says, or it might be Regina. Could be. I, You know, I'm not going to uh, weigh in. She says, sending this small token with my best wishes. If you're sick of donuts, feel free to spend it on some of those heavenly maple cream biscuits you have over there. Yeah, I like oh, those too. Yeah, wow. I truly appreciate how you cover some very grim subject matter with compassion, sensitivity, and openness. All the best. Regina from Tipperary, Ireland. Well, there you well, go. Thank you so much, Regina. Much appreciated. That is super kind. Monet Terrio sending us some more Again? donut money. Again. Wow. She just keeps it up. That's like ridiculously Thanks kind. Thanks so much, Monet. Yeah. Monet must be rolling in the Monet. Oh. Oh. Oh, it's going to stop God. now, isn't it? That was dumb. That hurt me. That was really dumb. Yeah. I am so sorry. I'm just um, just mad that I didn't say it first. You're you're mad that you didn't say it first? That's really what it comes down to. Oh, Yeah, it happens. Yeah. So this one is a weird one. Oh, it's from somebody named Sarah Long. And I don't know what, you know, whether she's tall or... You know, she's long. Okay, yeah. Sarah Long. Yep, Sarah Long. Sarah Long. Is her last name Johns? No. Oh. No, she's just Sarah Long. She said, you don't have to say my name, but I'm saying it because it's Sarah Long. You said it. I'm saying Sarah Long. I did. I said it again. Multiple times. She said, uh, oh, what she wants to do is say, hey, Jessica Hodges from Keokuk. And that's in Iowa. Yeah, classic Jessica. Uh, yes, her. you. Go shit in your hat. Yeah, take a big steaming shit in your hat. The steamiest of steamers. And then pull it down over your ears. Yep. And what do, what does Jeff Jessica Hodges do for a living? Oh, you're not aware? No. You don't know what she does for a living? I haven't a clue. Oh, uh, well, okay, it's not all that glamorous. It's not... Oh, yeah. Is she a garbage lady? And no, you're close. Oh no, is it toilet cleaner? She cleans toilets. Yeah, but I mean, it's steady work, Mike. There's lots to be cleaned. Yeah, and so does she have like a little, like a little van? She does. That she drives around. And she does. Yeah. Well, a large van because she has spare commodes just in case. <laughs> Whoa! So she installs? <laughs> it need be. 
that's how dedicated she is to her craft. You know what? It sounds like shitty work to me. I oh, again. Yeah. Oh, geez. we're sorry, Jessica oh. Hodges. But I mean, like I said, it's a but people. Y- you people know, will always shit. Well, she's got shit in her hat because we told her to. Well, go I know her hat. that's why. So she's probably good at cleaning. Like, it I don't anyway. know if we should say that to her, but you know, because she's a bit sensitive. It could around. be offensive to her. It could be offensive to her, or she could just be like, "Yeah, no big deal. No big deal. But I shit in my hat. There's more than shit in my hat. I got shit on my hands. Got yeah, shit on my knees. We'll see what I'm getting at. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, eh, whatever. That's not an insult. Sure. I mean, that happens to me three times a day. But steady trade. Steady. She o- owns her own home. Like life is good. But yeah, it's not glamorous. But you know, still good on you, shit cleaner. There you go. Yeah. And here's one. Uh, I don't know if she wants us to read this, but I'm gonna anyway. Oh, because she's awesome. This is from Jessica Heron, and she says, "Hi, Mike and Scott. I used to be a Patreon patron, but then my husband got laid off, and we struggled to stay afloat for a bit. And you know what? If you oh. can't patronize us, like." Just tell it. Keep telling your friends about us. Like, yeah. Seriously. Yeah. Um. Anyways, because I'm so sorry about my Patreon lapse, I wanted to send you a PM amount worth of donut money. Oh. I truly appreciate your po- podcast and the Umber Yard. I'm a longtime listener, so I naturally re-downloaded my favorite episodes for recent trips to Toronto to meet with the Canadian PM. Wait. Eek. Oh. So she I, met Trudeau. I I was I think I was following some of this story of hers on the Instagram. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, wow. So there you go. And she says, thanks for all you do. Go get some donuts or poutine or something. Jessica Aaron, Cold Lake, Alberta. Wow. You know what, Jessica? Thank you so, so In, much. Incredibly. Yeah. yeah. And from what, if I'm thinking of the, the, the right person, what a fascinating, I think she went there. Uh, forced the CBC like it. She yep. was like a, a citizen who went to go and sure. be interviewed and, and and met the PM and then watched the debates for C- like. I, wow. I'm, if I'm thinking, I, I'm pretty confident it's the same person. Cool. And that was just really awesome. It was really neat to kind of follow that. And uh, yeah, well, thank you so much, Neato. Yeah. Thanks so much to our patrons, past and present, for your pledges. We really appreciate your support of the show. Really, 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 really. I don't want to use the word really, but but you just we, did. We really do. Really. If you want to help support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash dark poutine or for a one time support, you can email us uh, or you can PayPal us some donut money at dark poutine podcast gmail.com. If you don't already, it would mean a lot to us if you subscribe to the show. You can easily find us on Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn. Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Please give us a follow on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine. Most importantly, tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye, and don't nuke anyone in the meantime. (laughs) Please. And if you find the plutonium, just give it back. Just give it back. Just give it back. Give it back.